0: All right, all right. Man, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm already ready for winter to be done. I know I mentioned that last week and everyone's like, come on, man, you grew up in New England. Like you gotta be a little tougher than that. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm a summer guy. I can't stand the wintertime. And I know why we're, we might be a little bit light today. You know why? patrons aren't playing today. You know, we're not going before Heavenly Father asking for a victory, okay? So expect next week we're going to be full, all right? (laughs) All right, no, just kidding. Hey, glad you guys are here. Again, if you don't know me, my name is Scott, and uh, I figured to start today, I'd give you a little bit of a window into my life, uh, especially kind of the the beginning roots. Uh, I've got a track record of impatience and attempting stupid things, okay? It began when I was a baby, really. Uh, I'm a triplet, if you didn't know that, I'm a triplet. Uh, I got a brother and a sister, same age as me, uh, and uh, I was impatient to walk. I couldn't wait to walk, apparently. Like, I was the first one to just kind of try to get up and I had all the cuts, the bumps, the bruises to prove it. In fact, I got to a place where uh, my parents were scared to take me out into public because they thought I looked like an abuse case, all right? Like, they were just worried because I I couldn't stop trying to walk. Well, my persistence paid off and uh, eventually walked. He was the first one to do that, but you know, I was just impatient. I was impatient, but I did a lot of stupid things too. I I remember I convinced my brother at one point uh, to take a toy chest that we had in the basement and go float it in a little pond thinking like we could actually pull this off. We could be a submarine. And uh, you can imagine how that went down, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out so well. Uh, but uh, man, I try to convince my, my siblings to do all sorts of crazy things. I remember um, I was probably four or five at the time. Uh, I convinced all my siblings to beat my parents to uh, awake time. And uh, we went down and watched cartoons and we pulled out the uh, vitamin pills out of the cupboard because I love the vitamin pills. And so we're watching cartoons and popping pills. And mom comes down and is like, what are you doing? <laughs> all right. So you're like, I just, I, was, I did a lot of stupid things. I was a bit of a daredevil, too. Uh, I used to try things that you just shouldn't try. Um, in college, like, I jumped off of 40-foot cliffs into the water. Like, I, uh, it, when I went to Israel one time, I went out in the desert. Um, when we're in kind of the arid places, I would flip over rocks just to see if there's something dangerous underneath it. You don't do that, okay? That's really stupid. Uh, in high school, I chased a bear into the woods. No joke. I'll tell you that story at another time. Uh, but, like, a, a lot of the things that I did, like, I was I was impatient, and I just dared to do stupid things. Uh, because in the moment, I thought it was worth it. Now, along the way, like, God totally got a hold of my heart and changed my life and actually started transforming some of these daredevil things from really stupid things into things that actually started mattering in people's life, things that actually made an impact for eternity. Um, But no matter what I did, whether it was for my own selfish pursuits or whether it was actually starting to align myself with God, I got a lot of negative feedback along the way. Anytime you try to do something that's worth it, you're always going to get some setbacks and pushback and negativity along the way. That's just, that's just how it goes. I, I mean, I heard this constantly. That'll never work, Scott. That's stupid. Why would you do that? I mean, just always, it would always happen. Pushbacks, setbacks, discouragement, negativity. But for me, the question was never whether I was capable of something or what people thought about it, but was it worth it? Was it worth doing? Now, my guess is every one of us in this room, you've done some really cool things in your life. And maybe God has used you in some really cool ways, but my guess is that some of the things that you did that were most worth doing, you didn't do without setbacks, negativity, pushback on your life. So what I want us to wrestle with today is really what do you do when you get that? When you get those setbacks, those things that you just didn't expect, those road bumps in the road, and some criticism and negativity that's thrown your way when you really want to do something, and particularly when you are feeling called by God to make a difference in this world. We're in a series called Difference Makers, and it's all about how do we follow God to really truly make a difference in all of the environments and places that God has called you. I think your home is there. Like, you've been called to your home for a reason. You're, you've been called to your neighborhood for a reason. You're in your workplace and your job for a particular reason, what does it look like to make a difference there? Now, today, again, we're just going to wrestle with like, well, what happens when you get negativity and all that pushback? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, throw your hand up and we'll have some people who can get you a Bible. Absolutely. Guys, can we get some Bibles out here? I think it's on page 222 in the Bibles. Um, so we're going to explore Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, we've been exploring the life of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was called by God to go back to the city where he was born, where he He and his family had been displaced for a hundred years in the land of Persia, but he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And to rebuild the walls for one reason, to let the name of God be known again and to let his purposes of redeeming and reconciling this world back to himself be known publicly. And so today we're going to wrestle with that. What does it look like? when you receive feedback that's negative, pushback, um, all sorts of attacks and persecution, because when they started rebuilding the walls here, some negative stuff started happening. So let me read, or let me pray for us real quick. We'll we'll read this together, and then we'll start wrestling with it. So let's pray. God, again, thank you for the immense privilege that it is for us to gather every single week and to wrap our minds around what your word have to say. Uh, We believe, God, that your word These scriptures here literally lays out your heart for us in this world. And my prayer today, God, is that you would align us with that because there's so many competing voices all day long, all week long, really trying to rip us away, God, from what matters most. So show us today, God, what matters most. And again, show us how you're fighting for us, most importantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter four, here we go. The rebuilding has started, and this is what happens. Ready? Verse 1. When Sanballat, here's the, uh, the villain. If we had villain music, I'd start playing it now. Uh, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who is at his side, said, what are they building? Even if a fox climbs on, it, it would break down their walls of stone. So you get the picture here. They're rebuilding. They just started it now. And now all the haters start coming out. Okay, Sanballat, we've heard about him before, but here's a guy who just like hated what they were about, did not want these walls to be rebuilt because he did not want the people of Israel to come back to what they were doing and to let the name of God be known. He's just totally against it. Now, this is what haters do. Haters gather around themselves a bunch of people uh, because they can't stand on their own. They're way too weak. Uh, But they gather around some other people so that they can kind of jeer together, okay? And this is what they say. This is how they start attacking. What are those feeble Jews doing? You're inadequate. You can't do this. You're not up for the task. Will they really restore the walls? No way. The walls are way too big. That's that task is far too big for you. You can't accomplish that. You're weak. You're inadequate. The task is too big. Will they finish in a day? The time is too short. You'll never accomplish it in time. And will these stones come back to life burned as they are? The reality was when uh, when the city of Jerusalem was attacked, everything was burned down. And so even the stones were kind of burnt. And so they're saying, look, your equipment stinks. Everything about you, you're worthless, you're weak, you're feeble. You can't do this. Now, as with every good villain, they've got a sidekick. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you ever watch the movie A Christmas Story, who's the villain? You remember his name? Scott Farkas. Remember that? Scott Farkas. And he had this little, like, sidekick with him. Do you remember who he was? (laughs) I loved it. You know, Scott Farkas, what an awful rotten name. And his crummy little toady, Grover Dill. I loved it. You know, like, the the thing with with toadies is, like, they can't really stand on their own. They need someone bigger than themselves to be able to say something. They're too cowardly. But this is what Tobiah is. He's the crummy little toady. And he comes up behind him, and he's like, yeah! You know, uh, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down the walls, and when he says, you can kind of picture the haters coming around and be like, oh, no, you didn't. You know, they're like, they're all kind of rocky, and I'm telling you, like, in that moment, they're, they're like, they're just hating, and they're building this circle of hatred, and all of the Israelites are hearing these words, and hatred stings. Now, I know we're familiar with this phrase, like, sticks and stones may break your bones, but... Yeah, words will never hurt I me. Mean, that's a lie. It's a big, fat lie. The reality is probably all of us could comb through uh, our past and remember words that were said at us, directed towards us, that we still remember because they cut so deep. Maybe it's words that your parents said about you, you know, like, you're never going to amount to a whole lot. Or, man, if you could just only be like so-and-so, you know, then you'd be somebody. Uh, I remember my my wife had a stepfather who uh, had words that were repeated to her quite often and they were, uh, I love you, but I don't like you. In other words, I put up with you and it's gonna take a lot of effort for me to actually enjoy you. You probably know those words right now in your mind. You can go back and think about coaches, teachers, peers, parents who said things to you that were so cutting that they still ring in your head and the reality is this, We have to understand this. If you're going to follow Jesus and participate in the work that he wants to do to rebuild this world, to rebuild relationships, to restore what's broken and what's lost, you're going to expect attacks. They're going to happen. Because there's an enemy of your soul that wants to take you out of the game. And he uses every one of those biting, awful, negative comments that go from your past. He uses all of those to try to distract you from engaging in the work that's right in front of you. The reality is God made you awesome. He made you awesome, and He loves you, and the way that you were designed by Him is not a mistake. I don't care what anybody else has said about you. You are not a mistake. He loves you, and His intention is to use you in a powerful way in this world, but the enemy of your soul is going to try to rip you away from that purpose, take you away from loving people and contributing to His work in this world. It's just what's going to happen. In fact, Jesus said it this way, there is no neutral ground. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, if they hated me, they're going to persecute you also. They're going to hate you too. Now, we don't turn to this passage necessarily for inspiration a lot of the time, but this is what Jesus said too in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Anybody be like, man, I rejoice and glad when people are hating on me. No, but like he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In other words, it's like this. You know you're headed in the right direction of following Jesus when you got enemy fire coming at you. Jesus is saying you're on the right track. But we have to be careful because sometimes we can associate persecution and attacks with things that they're really not, okay? Like if you're stuck in traffic, bumper to bumper, you can't just be like, oh man, the world's hating on me. You know, Jesus, like, man, God, could you just get me out of this persecution? Like, look, it's not persecution. You just didn't wake up in time, okay? Like, like if someone kind of sneaks into that parking space before you do, it's not like, man, the devil's out to get me, you know? Like, no, <laughs> just missed a parking space, okay? Like seriously, we can, we can chalk some things up to be enemy attack when they're really not. Here's how you know. When you're engaged in God's reconciliation work and truly being about what He's about and not just what the American dream's about, I'm telling you right now, it is going to be so easy for all of us to pursue the American dream, to get a a better house, better stuff, higher income, and all this stuff, just to, you know, to build up my success, to build up my comfort. But man, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about redeeming and reconciling lives connecting relationships with each other, connecting lost people to their heavenly father, and then from there to participate in rebuilding a world that is so at war with itself. And when you're about that and you get pushed back, then you know it's legitimate persecution. But we gotta, we gotta make that distinction. We must be about Jesus and his mission and not just about ourselves, okay? Man, when, when Charity and I started this church, uh, we started getting... Uh, Pushback and negativity right away. Uh, I remember some of the people that I trusted back in that time, uh, some people that I, I, I looked up to, you know, I, I shared, man, I, I really think God wants me to go start a church in the greater Nashua area. And like this burden for what uh, is lost between Manchester, New Hampshire, and Boston, the second least religious state of the country, like people just don't know that they can have a relationship with God. Like this, it's, it's a burden on my heart. We got to do something about that, <laughs> I'll never forget this. The two of us were sitting down at dinner and uh, across from another couple over the table and they said, I would never hire you. If you're gonna start a church, I'd never hire you. Another person said, uh, uh, you know you're starting a nonprofit when you start a church, right? I've started a nonprofit, and that's really hard. Like, really? You're gonna do that? Do you know anything about starting a nonprofit?" Other people were quick to say, hey, you know church plants never make it, right? Like, it's so rare, the ones that actually survive all of this, you know that that's, that's the reality, right? Other people have said, like, man, like you, you're filled with a lot of promise, but if you start now, you're way too young. You're going to burn out and you're going to destroy your family. Man, what do you do with that? We were convinced that God wanted us to do it, but it did not come without all of the negativity and the criticism. I mean, it was like from around almost every corner. Now, that's not everybody. There were a lot of people that actually got behind us, encouraged us, but man, it is easy, even when you got nine people encouraging you, to let that one voice Penetrate into your mind and just leave this yuck that cycles over and over and over. And if we let that get into our mind and our hearts, I'm telling you right now, it's going to take us right out of the game. Because in those moments that you start believing that, you start kind of hunkering down. You're like, okay, how do I protect me? How do I protect my stuff? How do I protect my finances? How do I protect my family? And Jesus is like, no, wait, I got you. I already protected you. Now go out and dare great things for me. That's what he's all about. Now, in the, in the middle of this, uh, Nehemiah responds to this kind of hatred. And this is so important to find out how he responded, okay? This is how he responds. After all this negativity, the, uh, the crummy toady, Tobiah, uh, hear us, Nehemiah says in verse 4, hear us, our God, for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, that might come as a bit of a shock, because like, you know, most of us, we're not training each other to just be like, God, don't forgive those people. Get them, God. So like, what do we take away from that? That seems pretty negative, doesn't it? Now, there's three things that I wanna point out here really quickly as we uh, unpack a little bit of what we, what we see Nehemiah doing here. The first thing is that he doesn't dismiss or ignore the abuse done to him. That's really important. For some of us, like we just gotta own the fact that someone wronged us. We have to own that. And it's easy for some of us to just like, dismiss it or not, you know, not own the fact that that actually happened. It's really important for you to know that it is abuse. It's wrong, it's unjust. And so he acknowledges it. It really did happen. But he doesn't just stop there. He then directs his plea to God. You notice what he doesn't do and what all of us would like really be tempted to do in that moment. You know, when other people are hating on us, he he doesn't just like flick them off and like shout some yo mama jokes in their face. Like we'd be so satisfied if he was just like, get them, you know, nail them, put it back in their own face, get angry right back. But he doesn't do that. He gets quiet, and he prays to his heavenly father because he knows the battle is really not against him. The real fight is against God. And at the end of the day, he doesn't answer to the sandballots and the Tobias of the world. He answers to his heavenly father. Man, when God is calling you to something and somebody's in your face and getting right in your grill, like, don't lash back. Don't retaliate. Go to your heavenly father. He's the one on the throne, not them. He's the one on the throne. And when he calls you to something, he's going to be with you. That's his promise. Man, Jesus, this is incredible. This is what Jesus did. And we have resources in Jesus that Nehemiah did not have because he was a couple hundred years before that. Uh, 1 Peter um, 2.23 says this about Jesus, that when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus, when the opponents hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly vengeance is mine declares the lord man can we trust that can we trust that god is good and at the end of the day when all is said and done he's finally going to set the record book straight trust it into god's hand don't retaliate don't throw that punch i'm telling you what uh When we were gearing up for the Christmas Eve celebration, we had uh, almost 200 people there on Christmas Eve night. It was so much fun. Uh, It was a bit of a, a crazy town road getting up to that night. And a couple of weeks there, we put 150 yard signs all over the city. And there were some people that weren't so happy about it. In fact, there was one guy who called me nine times and uh, he said, you gotta take down every one of your signs. It was not a city official. Uh, so we were not in trouble with anybody in any public sphere. In fact, a lot of people were super excited about what we were doing. But one dude kept calling me and said, uh, no joke, no joke. He said, you're destroying my business. You're destroying my family. You're destroying my kids' college education and their life is going down the twos because of yard signs. What? <laughs> All right, I'm telling you, like in that moment, it'd be so easy for me to just be like, bam, you know? And like, just throw him something that like, just to let him know that's, that's stupid. But in that moment, I felt like God was just quieting me down. He's like, look, Scott, he's not fighting you. He's fighting with me. So leave it in my hands. You just go love. And so in that, man, I had resources to be able to say, man, I'm so sorry, that's an inconvenience to you. Uh, how can we help you? Don't retaliate. We gotta love, and we have resources that Nehemiah didn't have because Jesus said, "Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven." Why do we have these resources, and how can we follow Jesus in that? Because Jesus died for us when we were his enemies, why we were yet sinners, why we were his enemies. He died for us. Man, if that's true, we gotta love our enemies and we got to pray for them. So he doesn't ignore or dismiss the abuse that's done for him. He acknowledges that injustice has been done, but Nehemiah directs his plea to God because he knows that God is seated on the throne. And then finally, we have the resources to love and forgive. But here's the deal, okay? This is all external attacks coming in at, at the rebuilding efforts here. There's a greater threat. There's a greater enemy. And it's not from the outside. It's actually from the inside. Check this out starting in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. No matter what kind of negative and, and external threats and abuse that they were going to say, like, we, re- re- we rebuilt the wall. We did it. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. Man, that's so important. Worked with all of their heart. But when Sinbalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So important to understand that it went from verbal attacks to actually now they're positioning themselves against these people. It's real physical attack at this point. And it's not just from one direction. It's so important to understand where all of these attacks are coming from. Sanballat is from Samaria. That's from the north. Tobiah, he's with some other guys with the Arabs, and that's from the south. The Ammonites are from the east, and the people of Ashdod are the Philistines from the, the west. So where's it all coming from? Everywhere. The attacks are coming from all sides, and man, the enemy of your soul is going to want to try to attack you from every side to take you out of the game. He knows your insecurities, he knows your weaknesses, and he's going to prey on all of those things in in all sorts of crazy ways to try to take you out of the game. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, people of Judah, meaning the Jews, the people that that, uh, Nehemiah is working with, his own teammates, okay, this is where it starts to get internal. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out. There's so much rubble that we can't even rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and kill them and put an end to the work. And the Jews, again, his own teammates, the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Guys, we have to understand that the greatest enemy is not outside of us, it's actually inside of us. That when we start believing these lies that are said to us in so many different directions, coming from all angles, when we start believing those lies, that's what's going to rip our life apart. They started believing that the strength the labors have given out, like they're getting tired, they're getting weary, we can't do this work because we're just wearing out here. They started believing that. And when they believed that, man, their work started to reduce. They said, "There's so much rubble that we can't rebuild. The problem's too big. It's too big." Even when they had rebuilt the walls till half their height, they said, "Man, oh, we're getting tired. And there's so much work still left to do." And they just started repeating this over themselves. It says 10 times. They started saying these things over and over and over. They're believing these things repeatedly. Ten times. You're never going to make it. They're going to get us before we stop. Let me just say this right now. It is so much easier to point out all the flaws in all the areas of your life and together for us as a church where we're weak and failing and not strong enough. Why? Man, we're human beings. <laughs> If I take a good enough look at my life, like there's a lot of areas that I'm, I'm messing up. Man, I told you some stories to begin with. That's an ongoing problem for me. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a weak guy at times, and I do some things that I don't want to do. But it's so much easier to point out all the negative things, all the ways that we're weak and failing, all the ways that we're going to not thrive and survive, rather than to point to all the ways that we are already winning And guys, like, this is no more true than in a church plant. I'm telling you, like, I so resonate with Nehemiah in this because when you're building from the ground up and you start with nothing, it is so much easier to look at all the ways that you're weak and miserable. I can't even tell you how many times I've woken up in the middle of the night and be like, man, are we ever, are we gonna make this? Maybe I'm really not a good leader. Maybe I'm a terrible communicator. What if my family suffers? Like, if we can't make it, like, what's gonna happen to them? Man, you start believing that stuff, you go to some dark places. And some of you have been there. Some of you know what that's like, the criticism and the negativity that you could get on a daily week in and week out basis, maybe from your coworkers, your boss, whatever it is, you start believing lies. And I'm telling you right now, if you start believing those lies and and have that kind of injected into your heart, it's gonna take you to some dark, dark places. Don't believe it maybe for some of you, like your lie has been that you just really bought into is that life is really about some things that it's really not. Maybe you've bought into this lie that life is really about success and climbing the corporate ladder. And man, you just need to do whatever you can to get better and better and better at your job. And the enemy's using that to take you out of the game. Your personal ambition is taking you away from loving the people around you. Maybe it's taking you away from your family. Maybe it's taking away from your your neighborhood, and that ambition is just destroying you. Maybe for some of you, it's personal comfort, and you just love to kind of seclude yourself in a nice, you know, cozy little place. God has taken you out of the, or the enemy's taking you out of the game from really loving people where they're at. For some of you, man, like parenting has become this, this thing where you're just like, you're so owned by your kids, or you just want control so bad over your kids and what they're doing. That you just like you've given yourself 150 percent to your kids and and you've neglected some of the other lives around you and don't don't hear me wrong on that one your kids are the mission god god wants to love your kids and grow them up to be the next generation but man we can also miss out on all the other people that are around us because we just want to control man don't believe the lies and this is what nehemiah says this is so powerful in the middle of us believing these lies, like he just sends out this this call that says, man, get it right. This is what it's all about. So after all of this, verse 13, he says, therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest parts of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, one of the most powerful phrases in all of scripture, I love this battle cry, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. Fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Do not give up. And in the middle of all the negativity and the criticism and everything, he says this, man, don't focus on all the ways that we're weak. Remember one thing, God. God. When you remember who He is, man, we have the resources in the world to never give up and never give in. Who is He? He's the author of all existence. (laughs) It means He's got more power than you can dream of. He loves you. Man, when He made you, He made you good. I don't care what those lies are. He made you good. He has infused his own personal affection into you. And he created you. This is amazing. Ephesians 2:10 it says, "He created you in Christ Jesus to do good works." It means he's not done with you. Man, you might, you might be thinking right now, I don't have a whole lot to offer. That is false. God thinks you're a powerhouse. And by the power of his spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. Like you think maybe some of your circumstances are tough. Like he raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know if you guys have ever been dead and alive again. He raised it from the dead. That kind of power's in you. When you believe and trust in Jesus, he has that power in your life. Don't believe the lies. Man, remember the Lord your God. Remember him. And we remember who he is and what he's done. Nothing nothing can stop us nothing and he's he calls them to a personal place too this is so powerful he says don't just don't just like think of this in the abstract I'm going to make this personal for you he says you've got to fight for your families your sons your daughters your wives and your homes meaning this the stakes are too high the impact here resonates everywhere This is going to have a massive impact on you and your families and your workplace and our city and our world. Man, God needs us to be a part of this reconciliation movement, guys. There are marriages in our neighborhoods right out here that are falling apart. There are kids that don't know the love of God because their families are ripped into. Heroin is, is, I mean, the epidemic's crazy. The addictions are rampant. Isolation runs crazy in these neighborhoods, I'm telling you, you might have all the gear and the success in the world, but you could be the most lonely person on planet earth. It's not okay. Man, God wants us to get in that game. Do not believe the lies. Remember the Lord your God. Remember Him. Remember what He's done for you. That when we were His enemies, when we were isolated from Him, He came to us. These are the stakes, guys. Uh, Researchers are looking at this next generation now, Generation Z, and they're saying that this may be one of the most lonely generations to come. They may be the most connected socially and over the internet, but even in that deep connectivity that they have online, they're experiencing some radical disconnectivity in person and in relationship. They don't even know what it means to even build real relationships anymore. A lot of like, people who are dealing with youth, they say that like, it's really hard for them to actually carry a conversation with them across from the table because they're constantly doing this. You know? <laughs> like, That'd be like super frustrating. You know? I remember the day where I had a flip phone and I shared it with my two siblings. Like, that wasn't that long ago. But, uh, man, this is Generation Z, and, and 34% of Generation Z right now identifies as either agnostic, atheist, or none, meaning they would rather not associate with any religion whatsoever. And the, here's the stakes. We're dealing with a, a generation that is rising up now to be radically isolated from each other and with their God. What kind of world do you want to live in? I don't know about you guys, but I want to be a part of God's rebuilding efforts to connect people with their heavenly father and then to connect them with each other and to start rebuilding this world together. That's the kind of world I want to be a part of. The last thing here, and this is, this is really important, The last thing here is uh, Nehemiah connects people with work. He puts them to work and he gives them swords and spears and shields, meaning that this is going to start getting personal. All of the weapons that he gives them actually to protect, uh, not to attack, but to protect uh, means it's like they're close combat weapons, meaning like it's going to get right in your face here. And if we participate in the work of God, it's going to get personal. We're going to have to risk some things to really get involved in the game here. It's going to hit you at a personal level and it's going to ask you to take some risks. It's going to risk your friendships. Like, man, to, for us to get involved in groups and to get to know each other and to build that kind of unity, it's going to risk vulnerability there. And it's going to risk you guys maybe putting yourself out there and having people reject you. It's possible. But when we do that, like, the, I mean, the opportunities are unbelievable. But man, you risk something there. You're going to have to risk getting to know your neighbors. You're going to have to risk asking for forgiveness because the church has done such a horrible job of representing God for a long time. You're going to have to risk being misunderstood. You're going to have to risk your resources, maybe not not working the way that you want to. Like when we give on Sunday morning, we're all putting our, our resources at risk. We don't know what God is going to do with that. We don't know. It doesn't guarantee that he's going to provide certain outcomes. No, we're putting it at risk. We're going we're to put our, ourself at risk, being misunderstood, our, our schedule. We're going to have to compromise our schedule a little bit. But I'm telling you right now that if we choose to get in the game and to fight together on this one, believing in God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. I love this. Uh, let, me, let me close us with this quote. Uh, anybody familiar with President Theodore Roosevelt? Uh, this guy was nuts. You look at his life and some of the things, the things that he was able to accomplish, it's just mind-boggling. He was the youngest president, age 42. Uh, he was uh, assistant secretary to the Navy, governor of New York, vice president and president. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating peace between Russian uh, and Japanese war in 1904 to 1905. Um, he worked on increasing the sanitation of meat and cleansing in a time where that, like, it was totally overlooked. Um, He won the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery while going, like leading troops up the San Juan Hill and getting viciously fired at. Uh, He's one of the heads on Mount Rushmore. That's pretty awesome. I wish I could accomplish that, but I don't think that's going to happen. He established five national parks and he built the Panama Canal, 48 miles long. About 1,000 ships used it in the first year and and over 14,000 use it today. I mean, the things that the guy was able to accomplish in his lifetime were unbelievable. But he had to overcome some incredible adversity. And this is what he says. And this, I, I want this to be like a, just a kind of a banner statement over us. Look, Theodore Roosevelt was not necessarily a guy who knew Jesus. But if his tasks in this world and some of the things that he was able to accomplish were pretty incredible. And God's called us to something even higher than that. To reconcile lives and to draw people back to their creator. Man, we can learn from this and take it to a whole new level. This is what he said. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. Think about the external criticism and the internal criticism that can really tear us apart. He says it, uh, it's, it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes up short again and again, and I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to disappoint. I, as your pastor, am going to disappoint you because I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes after mistakes after mistakes. I don't want that to be the case, but I'm human. Who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. That's just true. But who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. It's not whether you're up to the task, whether you're adequate or not, And I don't care what anybody else has said about you, about your life, whether you're up to it or not. The question is this, is it worth doing? And if it's worth doing, give it everything you have, remembering that God is with you, he's with you. I believe the best for our church is yet to come because God has promised to be with us. Lives are going to change. This city is going to look different. This world is going to look different because a group of people known the well decided we're not going to give in to the negativity around us and the attacks. We're going to bond. We're going to unite. We're going to come together and we're going to give it everything we had because of what Jesus has given for us. Man, let that be true of us. Let's pray. God, I pray for Courage. And I pray for truth. Because a lot of us in this room, God, have been surrounded by lies and negativity and things that are just really not true. And I pray that you would comfort our minds with what really is. Let us know who we are. Let us know whose we are. And let us give everything, God, to the cause of letting people know you and join your team. Thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. Thank you, God.